1: Welcome to Nightlight everybody. Thanks for joining us. We're so glad that you could spend time with us here. I want to first thank Ken Quiet Hawk for his amazing introduction. Please check out him on the internet. Look at, look for Native Storytellers and his name will probably be right on the top. He and his wife have <coughs> spent their spent their Lifetime, uh, being Native storytellers and preserving history in a very unique and unusual way that has been used for generations before the printed word, which in many ways um, puts greater life into the history rather than dry books. Only my opinion. I have tonight with me Jim Willis, who has written a fascinating book called Censoring God, the History of the Lost Books. And um, I found it fascinating. I enjoyed reading it, and I'm, I'm probably going to go back and read it a couple more times, given, giving me a further insight into a lot of the material here. Um, it opened questions for me, and it gave me answers, and it's, it's just an exciting book. And here's a little bit about it. Why isn't the book of Enoch in the Holy Bible, even though Enoch is referenced multiple times, why were texts considered sacred by many, excluded by others? And who made the decisions and why? There are more than 50 books, some of which exist only in fragments, while others are complete and whole, that are not included in the Bible canon. Why were these discarded? Most Protestant denominations settled on 66 con- conical books of the Bible, while there are 73 for Roman Catholics and 78 for Eastern Orthodox adherents and why are these differences why are there these differences of opinion we're often taught that the bible is in the words of many religious catechisms the infallible word of faith and practice in reality the bible can also be seen as a political document as much as a spiritual one Ordained minister and theologian Jim Willis examines the historical, political, and social climates that influenced the detractors and editors of the Bible and other sacred texts in his book, Censoring God, the History of the Lost Books, and Other Excluded Scriptures. In analyzing why texts were censored, he uncovers sometimes surprising biases, He investigates enigmatic hints of Bible codes and ancient wisdom that implies a greater spiritual force might have been at work. He explores the importance of the Book of Enoch, its disappearance, and how it was rediscovered in Ethiopia. And he analyzes over two dozen excluded texts, such as Jubilees and the Gospel of Thomas, along with the many references to books that we know about from fragments but remain lost. This is a really important book, And it looks at the human failings in interpreting God's words. And through a compassionate examination, it brings a deeper understanding of the power and importance of the lost words. He earned his master's degree in theology from Andover Newton Theological School, and he has been an ordained minister for over 40 years. He's also taught college courses in comparative religion and cross-cultural studies. He knows a whole bunch more than all of us put together, probably, and he is here to enlighten us for sure. Welcome to the show, Jim.
2: Oh, thank you, Barbara. I, you know, before we even begin, I've got to say that I fully agree with you about your opening. Every time I hear that music and that wonderful, wonderful voice, I, I just love it. <laughs> it just ties me in, brings me in, it really does. What a what a wonderful yeah. narrator he is. What a wonderful voice he has. I would love to sit oh, around a fire a fire some night with a bunch of people and listen to him tell the old stories. Wow, would that be fantastic? <laughs> well, you
1: know, you actually can do that. He and his wife have done a number of CDs, and um, they all are for sale, of course, um, on on his website and on Amazon, I believe, and. Um, the stories are are wonderful because they are telling the stories of the cosmology and the history of the Native Americans, and it's a it's yeah. a wonderful way to learn that history. And oh my goodness, his voice! You're right; is just
2: yeah. <laughs> I heard it
1: and I said, "That's my voice."
2: <laughs> you you know, in in the shamanic tradition, um, it was understood for years. Right up, I mean, there are even practicing shamans today who say that once you write down the words on paper, they lose their significance. It has to be an oral tradition. And um, I really think about that. Um, I, I think about it especially today. You know, kids today, we just don't sit around as families, multi-generation families, and hear the stories of what things were like in the old days. Um, I've had even even my own grandchildren. They come to visit and if we start talking, uh they you know, the next thing you know, the iPhones will be out, you know, and they'll be looking and and uh the whole idea of of multi generation families, two, three generations sometimes, sitting around a campfire at night and listening to the stories and it's it's wonderful. I've had some experience uh with that with a uh, a native american uh mentor of mine a teacher a teaching elder from the ojibwe tribe and uh he came uh he would come out to new england a couple of times a year and uh he was able to share for instance his tribe's creation story which normally takes like you know 4 or 5 days to tell but he gave us he could give us he was allowed to give us the shortened version, which although so we just spent a day I've never had a day go by so quickly. It was just amazing to to hear the power uh and the vibration of the story and just get lost in it. And as soon as you write it down you start thinking about, well, this couldn't be because, you know, we have to compare this with the history that we know <laughs> and all this kinda of, it just it just loses so much power. So I'm I'm going to look up his website and I'm 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 going to uh, I'm going to look into that. I really am.
1: Well, they they say that words don't begin to live until they're spoken.
2: I think so. Yeah, I agree. One hundred percent.
1: Maybe we should do the Bible that way.
0: Well,
2: you know, I I think <laughs> so. I I have listened um, to the Bible uh, on you know just the spoken word, uh, you know, audio books. And to be honest, mostly I find it kind of dull. But I don't think it's because of the words. I think it's because of the readers. Um, they're they're reading words, and when you listen to an oral tradition of a of an elder who's just telling a story, he's not reading anything. You know, he's using his own words, and so it might change a little bit from here to there. Um, but that's that's fine, you know. Um, so I I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. I uh, I go back and forth on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm well, not sure you can have. A... That,
1: isn't, isn't that? Yeah. So well, I was I was going
2: to say I'm, I, the... I'm I'm not sure a real oral tradition involves reading any words off the page. You know what I mean?
1: Well, no, probably it doesn't. But isn't that yeah. the way that the Bible stories originally were passed That's around? the
2: way they were at first. Yeah yeah and, and i think that's why we have so many so many strange things that we can't explain especially about the old old texts you know the genesis text for instance there's a lot of things in there that we just can't explain and i think it's probably because the texts, the the stories were so well known that when they were written down um probably all of the inflections and everything else went in for instance you know genesis 6 there were giants in the uh on the earth in those days well what does uh-huh. that mean? <laughs> in the Bible, there's no context given, you know. The Book of Enoch gives a lot more context, but in the Bible, there is no context. It's just, and I can, I can just imagine the thrill that would have gone down my spine if I had been sitting in the dark, looking at a fire, hearing a teaching elder say, and there were giants in the land in those days. Wow, that would have just absolutely yeah. blown me away. <laughs>
1: but, but, you know, when you start to think about it, um, every, every storyteller... In, you know enhances or or changes yeah. things slightly or
3: yeah, or, yeah. or
1: and and then a lot of these texts were copied and copied and copied and copied, oh, yeah. and some yeah. of them were some of them were dictated and mm-hmm. and quite possibly the person dictating was saying one thing, and the person dicking it down was saying, "Well, I can put that a better way and you know just yeah. <laughs>
2: that's a matter of, you know there is an actual <laughs> example of that uh when when Jerome uh, oh, Saint Jerome! I can't remember the date now. I think it must have been I, I, it was 405 uh, CE, 405 of the Common Era, or 405 years after the traditional birth of Jesus. Uh, he was uh, translating, and uh, the the words, the scriptures of the New Testament, and 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 well, for that matter, the Old Testament too, into a translation which is now called the Latin Vulgate. And it's still the uh, official version of the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, and, and a lot of uh, um, you know books of the Bible. I mean, a lot of modern translations are based on that translation. But when he was uh, converting the words of Paul into Latin, once in a while he would make changes because he said, "Well, we can't expect Paul." Uh, to use the same uh, quality of Latin that we have nowadays, <laughs> so he was actually ah. admitting he was actually admitting that he was not just translating the words of, the, of, of, of Paul in, in his epistles. He was actually trying to improve upon them a little bit to get, give a little better language. <laughs> well, yeah, so that's you know, actually been done.
1: Well, and there is that old story, and I'm sure you've heard it about the monks that were in the monastery, copying the texts over and over and over again. And yeah. finally one of them said to his friend, do we still have the originals down in the basement or in the, in the archives? <laughs> and Absolutely. his friend said, oh, surely, go down and look. And he goes down and looks, and he, the guy never comes back up. And finally the, the supervisor goes down and, and finds him just sobbing over the over over the desk, and he says, what's wrong? And he, he looks up with tears streaming down his face, and he said it was... Celebrate, not celibate.
2: (laughs) Oh, I haven't heard that story. I'm going to use it, though. I'm going to steal it from you, Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) I love it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, enhance it all you want. Um, There you go. There you go. You know, the the tagline is just precious. But so, so we're looking at. Old Testament and New testament, and we 're looking at at all of these books that supposedly were written by by the disciples and by you know yeah. other people and mm-hmm. one of the biggest aha moments that I have ever had is that most of the books written by theoretically the disciples were not written by the disciples
2: yeah, yeah so, you know so how- you know it's, it it comes as a shock. To most people, I know, it came to shock to me when I first went to seminary and started studying this stuff. uh, We like to think about the Bible being straight from the Word of God, right? Right from the mouth of God. You know, God dictated Uh the Bible, and now we have it just as God wants us to. Um, and But when you start to, to look at it, I mean, it, it, you know, all the, all the catechisms, the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Roman, Roman Catholics, they all have it in their catechism that the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And it comes as a shock, and it almost seems like heresy to a lot of Christians who have Bibles in their homes, and they swear by the Bible, they swear on the Bible, yeah. once, the, once in a while they swear at the Bible, uh, yeah. who... Who, who, who say, uh, you know, this is the Word of God. They've never read it. And so they just imagine what they're, what's in there, and they think they're getting it from, uh, you know, if they hear it from the pulpits or, 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 you know, or something like that, and they think that this is what's, what's in the Word of God. And um, it comes as a shock for them to realize we don't have one, not one, Original text of both the New Testament or the Old Testament. Not one original text survives. Of course, um, I was I was born in in forty uh, six. and the year before I was born, the uh, Nag Hammadi uh, texts were discovered in Egypt. Um, and what what the Nag Hammadi texts are was with in in uh, Egypt. Uh, Primarily, the church in Egypt for the first couple hundred years was uh, what we now call the Gnostic uh, tradition church.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Uh, not the 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 Gnostics were there, and they had all kinds of you know, the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Bartholomew and all of these gospels that were considered Gnostic gospels. Probably the most famous nowadays is the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, the Roman Church was in Western Europe, and the Eastern Orthodox, what we now call the Eastern Orthodox Church, was in in Asia, uh, and Istanbul was right in the center of them both. Istanbul used to be Constantinople, and that's where Constantine moved the capital of Rome. It moved his own capital. So we had three different churches going on and the the uh Constantine wanted to bring together the Roman Empire, and he decided to do it with religion in the fourth century um, and so when when he wanted to get together one- one world religion, they had to decide, well, which one are you going to do the Gnostic tradition, the Roman tradition, or the orthodox tradition and the Roman tradition won out. And so they uh, the decree went out from Rome that the Gnostics had to get rid of all their texts. They had to burn them all because you know, they, they didn't necessarily agree with the books that were going to be what we now call the New Testament. So uh, they were just destroyed wholesale. They were burned all over the place. But some far-seeing Gnostic uh, priests decided, no, it's not going to happen. And the, they took their Gospels. And they buried them in in, uh, in clay jars and they buried them in the, in the desert. And there they sat. Nobody knew they were there until the year 1945 when they were discovered. And in 1945, we got all of a sudden all these new texts. The same kind of thing happened to what uh, we Christians call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, all these texts were, were, uh, were buried up in around the Dead Sea, and they're now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were born in 19... They, they were discovered in 1947. But he, neither the, the Nag Hammadi texts or the Dead Sea Scrolls they didn't have any originals either. They were copies of copies of copies. So I think it was kind of uh, a destiny for me to be born in 1946, the year before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the year after the discovery of the Nagamati Scrolls. I think I was just kind of destined in my life (laughs) to look into all these things and and discover them. So when I wrote uh, Censoring God, it's uh, it's the 13th, book that I've written now since 2001 but in a way it's my favorite because uh I've been studying it my whole life literally my whole life I was one of those obnoxious Sunday school kids who used to raise questions all the time <laughs> and got yelled <laughs> at in Sunday school so I guess I've been studying the scriptures since 19 well 1950 anyway and uh seriously studying them since about 1970 I guess um, and uh, it's been it's 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 been a trip. I want <laughs> I want to tell you when I wrote censoring God, it was kind of like a whole put my whole lifetime of uh, my study into it.
1: Well, yeah, and but but I think most people don't understand that that it, it isn't the it, it, the the book itself is not written as an ongoing storyline. They 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 were putting essays together to create yeah, yeah. a storyline.
2: Yeah, and that's that's that was that's the hardest thing I think for people to come to grips with that between us and the, all those original texts there stands a committee, always a committee uh in the, the uh old testament for instance the hebrew scriptures most people like to think of jesus having the bible in his hands because the old testament was all written before jesus they say
3: mm-hmm.
2: but that's not true the uh the old what we call the old testament <coughs> really wasn't put together until well tradition has it at the um, the council of jamnia in which was the late 1st century ce uh, after about a hundred years after Jesus, um, ninety-four years after after the birth of Jesus, uh, ostensibly. Um, of course, there's all kinds of questions about that. But uh, it was put together 100 years after Jesus, or certainly after Jesus' word. So he never held in his hands a document that we call the Old Testament. Um, now, no, that's not to say he didn't have scriptures in his hands that we can recognize today. But every uh-huh. synagogue, I mean, not every, I mean, every group of Jews in each town, every group of elders... Would have a, a different copies. Uh, they, would, they would have different books of the Bible. I mean, sometimes they would exchange them back and forth. If somebody had only half of the half of Isaiah, the, maybe they would keep it for a year and then exchange it with the next town over, which had the second half of Isaiah or something like that. So uh, it, it and and in terms of the New Testament, well, that wasn't put together until like 400 years after the birth of Christ. Um, and it, it really makes me wonder about those committees that that sat there because, boy, if you uh, ask, you know, if you gave me a chance to go back in history and sit in on anything, I would love to go back to Jomnia, or I would like to go back to Hippo or Carthage and peek in the waste baskets and see what they threw away. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and the problem is that we know that the committees felt a lot of guilt about what they were doing because they just didn't include some books and put the others aside they included the books they wanted included and they burned the rest they destroyed the rest and all we have is fragments of them here and there fragments of this book or a fragment of that book uh, that we've discovered in different places. W- what 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 gets me is why you know why would they burn texts that they didn't want in the Bible unless they were trying to cover up their work? They wanted to make sure that we didn't have the ability to go back and check on them. So they must have had an ulterior motive. Uh, it was the same kind of thing that happened when the Spanish went into uh, Central America and when they were overcoming um, the the uh, the, Ma- the the Mayans. And they had all these wonderful Mayan scriptures. And the Spanish grew in, and they didn't want anybody to see this. They wanted to censor them. So what did they do? They gathered them all together, and they burned them in the public square. They said they were of the devil. We're going to burn them. And the only reason we know about the, the Mayan scriptures today, the Popovu or some of, some of those other Mayan scriptures, is because some far-seeing Spanish priests had the um, foresight to make uh, Spanish translations of them, and they would show up in different parts of the world. If it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't have even known the Mayans that are written language. Uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing, but that's why I called the book Censoring God, because that's exactly what these people were trying to do.
1: So they took these texts, and the author was never whose name appears on it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Take the first five books of the Bible, for instance. Um, Sometimes in Protestant Bibles, they're called the books of Moses because they were supposedly written by Moses. Well, of course, they weren't. Uh, Some people in in the Jewish tradition, uh, you know, they call them the books of Moses. But uh, in in the Christian tradition, sometimes we call it the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. And if you start with Genesis and read one right through, it seems to be one continuous story. But there's almost no question today that it was written by at least four different authors. It's called the JEPD theory um, because they had four different names for God and they had four different writing styles. The um, the J author uh, is is uh, refers to J uh, in, in 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 Germany um, where it's, where this. These ideas first came out. Uh, the word Yahweh is used. It's it's the Hebrew uh-huh. word Yahweh, and sometimes in Bible in in English it's translated either as the Lord or as Jehovah. And so, because the word Jehovah is there, they refer to the J author who refers to God as Jehovah. And then there's the E doctor uh, who refers to God as Elohim, and so he's the E author. And uh, the the P uh, and D stand for two different authors, and so it's the JEPD theory. And it's at least four different authors. And what they did was they would take all the different texts they had and try to stitch the committee, stitch them together, because these authors lived centuries apart from each other. They certainly didn't know each other. And they would stitch them together in one continuous uh, thread from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So, in, in the English Bible, you pick it up and read it, or even in the Latin Vulgate, and it appears to be just one, you know, one narrative, one story. Four different stories stitched together in in different ways, and uh, that's why there are some discrepancies among them. <laughs> some things that they just couldn't hide because one author said something that somebody else disagreed with. If if you want to see this, all you have to do is take the Bible off your shelf. Anybody who's listening. And read the first two chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, they are two completely different different accounts of creation. Um, and yet we read them so often that we think, well, it's just one story. But read them carefully and you see that they're two totally different books, uh, two totally different versions of the same story.
1: Well, and not only that, but they, they seem to be borrowing from... Um, Ancient mythology and other legends yeah. too to create um, a, a story. With a, they they created a flow and yeah. and mm-hmm. um, to and Isaiah who was Isaiah did Isaiah yeah. right Isaiah I mean yeah. why yeah, why Isaiah, did
2: they... there there are at least two different authors who wrote Isaiah and maybe three yeah
1: <laughs> so. But but you know, that I have to jump ahead to the New Testament. So, but Paul wrote Paul, right or wrong? P- Paul he wrote, wrote the what? letters. To, Paul wrote you know the letters to the Corinthians and stuff like that. I mean, he may have written some act- of them. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: he, he he wrote some of them, but some of them are almost certainly not written by the by the Apostle Paul. Um, 2 Timothy, uh, Titus. Uh, other, you know, the book of Colossians, probably the book of Ephesians, those were almost certainly not written by the Apostle Paul. They were probably written by, uh, well, the... the it's just pure speculation, but the idea is, is people want to try to say, well, it was written by a disciple of the Apostle Paul who wanted to put his name on it because he was inspired by Paul and he wanted to give Paul the honor you know, of it. <laughs> but Paul wrote some uh, letters which were original to him, First uh, Corinthians probably and, and, and Romans and a couple of others, but uh, almost certainly he didn't write all of them. And his name is on them, but he didn't write them.
1: What about the songs of Solomon? Did Solomon actually write that poetry, or
2: almost certainly not? <laughs> oh, uh, that's a that's a fantastic. I mean, it's it's a beautiful poem. If uh, a lot of people have not read the Book of Solomon, but if you want to do it, uh, I really would recommend it because it's a very well, and sometimes very uh, graphic. I don't want to say pornographic, <laughs> but a very graphic love poem that uh talks very uh candidly about uh, sexual love between uh Solomon and uh uh one of his wives or one of his mistresses uh it almost certainly was not written by Solomon but it was it was dedicated to him but it, uh, there's a fascinating story about the song of Solomon um it'll take us a little off where we were going but um uh, People always wondered, well, okay, Solomon was the author, and he was the male lover. Who was the woman? And uh, Mm -hmm. the story is told in both Kings and in Chronicles that the Queen of Sheba came up Mm -hmm. to visit Solomon because she wanted to hear about his wisdom and his wealth and everything else. And the story is told that, well, the Queen of Sheba, uh, people say, well, where is Sheba? Sheba. Probably in those times, uh, Ethiopia and Yemen were together for about a hundred years during the time of Solomon, and at that time, uh, they were one one uh, particular you know one one country and ruled by one queen, and she has different names. Um, but uh, the story for, that the Ethiopians still tell the story today is that the queen of Sheba went up to see Solomon. And uh, she was very taken with him. And there's a a funny story about uh, Solomon was taken with her as well. And (laughs) the story goes that this isn't in the Bible. This is from extra biblical stuff. But the story is said that uh, uh, Solomon said to the Queen of Sheba that he wanted her to stay in the castle. And she said, well, I'll stay in the castle with you as long as you don't make any sexual advances toward me. And he said, okay, I'll agree to that as long as you don't take anything that's mine. And she says, okay, I won't steal anything that's yours. So she had dinner with Solomon. And Solomon, being a crafty old guy, uh, decided to serve this very hot, spicy dinner, which she really loved. But it made her very thirsty. And he put a pitcher of water by her bed. And when she woke up in the night, she was very thirsty after this thing. So she uh, took a glass of water. Solomon came right in and said... You just stole something from me. You stole the water that I put by your bed. Therefore, we're going to sleep together the rest of the time.
3: <laughs> and the
2: story, and the story is that when Sheba went back, uh, the, and the Bible does tell this story, that Sheba went back and said Solomon was just you know, the greatest thing she'd ever seen. When she went back to Ethiopia, she took uh, with her more than uh, just the presents that Solomon gave. She actually took Solomon's child who became uh, the head of Ethiopia, and even in the time of Haile Selassie, when when you and I were younger, Haile Selassie called himself the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. And to this day, um, a lot of Ethiopians believe that they are descended from Solomon through the Queen of Sheba. But the neat thing about this whole thing is, in the Song of Solomon, when Solomon is talking about this lover who he is obviously smitten with, um, the lover says to him, I am black but comely. So, obviously, Solomon's um, love interest was, was black. Well, who would ha have been? Well, the Queen of Sheba came from Ethiopia. So, uh, that's the story that possibly that connects uh, Ethiopia. Matter of fact, the story even gets more convoluted, if you want to get into it, because... Um, The story also goes, and it's to this day, they believe that the offspring of Solomon and Sheba went back to meet his father and came back to Ethiopia carrying with him the Ark of the Covenant, which many Ethiopians believe to this day is still housed in a temple in uh, in Ethiopia. So it gets very convoluted. (laughs)
1: You know, and it it boggles my mind. I, I know that the priest that watches over it is solitary and he's there for his entire life, and he never leaves the compound, and he never talks yes. to people. And yeah. And they
2: have an amazingly short lifespan too. What do they die yeah. of? You know, people people wonder whether it's, it's radiation coming from the Ark of the Covenant, which they believe, reading from reading in the Old Testament, was some kind of a
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, had some kind of uh, power associated with it, either electromagnetic or even nuclear or whatever. The uh, radiation that uh, takes the lives of these priests very quickly.
1: It, it boggles my mind that nobody in power has just gone in and unlocked the gate and said, "Look out, I'm coming in." I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it, everyone has respected the fact that they're not allowed in, Yeah, and, and yeah. it boggles well, my e- mind because
2: yeah, the Ethiopians they want to protect that just as much as the uh, the Vatican wants to protect the stuff in the Vatican archives. You know, I mean, there are lots of secrets hidden away. And the Ethiopians themselves are not going to let it. And, of course, to come in, and any outsider who wants to come in is going to, first of all, have to defeat Ethiopia to see what's in there. And, you know, they're not going to go to war with Ethiopia over something like this, probably. So it, it, it's, yeah, mind-boggling is a good way to put it.
1: <laughs> it's just, just, you know, I've seen I've seen so many different reports on people trying to get in, and the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, they will talk to not not the main priest himself, but, you know, a, a helper, and I mean, what a lonely life.
2: Mm-hmm. But of
1: course, what an awesome job. But, but yeah. still, yeah. it... Yeah. Um,
2: what What is in there? It, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, but to this day, if you read any of the books out there or articles published about where is the Ark of the Covenant today, because it disappeared in the Old Testament, the book of Second Kings and Second Chronicles, it disappeared. And uh, nobody knows where it is. And there's all kinds of ideas. Some people believe it was buried in the, um, uh, you know, underneath the temple when the temple mm-hmm. was destroyed in 586 BC by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Some people believe it was buried there. Some people believe the Knights Templar found it and took it to Oak Island, <laughs> you know, in, in in Canada. Some people believe it. Uh, there's there's one wild story that it's in the, uh, in the in hidden away in a cave in the Grand Canyon. Uh, all kinds of ideas and also, some people believe montana. It's
1: just,
2: yeah montana that's oh yeah that's right uh all over the place it's just uh it's it's crazy okay. so who knows when you
1: stop to think when you stop to think about it the ark of the covenant was made of wood overlaid mm-hmm. with gold yeah what wood lasts over 2000 years
2: yeah yeah well this be yeah closer to uh Three thousand five hundred years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right.
1: I, I you know, I, I would. My, my personal opinion is that that you know they did find treasure and they did find stuff, but I think they they found texts, they found you know scrolls, they found wisdom for sure. Yeah. But, but as as far as the Ark of the Covenant,
2: well, I you don't know. There's... I mean. Yeah, there's there's another. I mean, if if we have time to go into this, there's another fascinating story about the Ark of the Covenant, um, and and that's that uh, when uh, and I guess it, 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 do we have time to go into the whole story? Is sure. this too far off the track? Um No problem. It, I I was try, you know trying to uh, work this out ever since I was in Egypt, uh, over there looking at the uh, the pyramid con- complex in Giza. And, uh, of course, when you uh, go down into the um, pyramids with a small group like ours, you just can't go down by yourself. You have to have an official Egypt guide with you. And the Egyptologists over there who give you the official party line uh, follow the line that Egypt is called, the the pyramids are called um, uh, uh, tombs and tombs only. They were just written for tombs. And other people think that maybe there's all kinds of other reasons that the, the uh, pyramids were built. But when, when our small group was going down studying the pyramids, and we went in, down in the pyramid with this Egyptologist guide, we were walking down this, this wooden pathway, and I noticed there were these wires running alongside of the pathway. And the purpose of the wires was to power the lights, which would go on ahead of us as we went down. And I began to think, well, how did, how did they see to work down here? When there were no, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't have electric wires and electric, you know. So I I was the first one in line. So I asked the guide. I, I looked up at the uh, the ceiling and I looked at the walls looking for signs of soot, you know, from torches or something like that. And I said, how did they see to get down here? And the guide, he literally turned away from me and said, oh, they must have had some kind of a light source. And on and on <laughs> he walked. <laughs> well, that story got me thinking about what how did they see down there and when i began to read the stories about the ark of the covenant i got this crazy idea which i i doubt is really true but i'll just put it out there because who knows Uh, i've heard other people say it since that you know the ark of the covenant itself seems to be associated with a great power source because when um, Moses was went into the tent. Nobody, nobody was allowed to look at the Ark of the Covenant. As a matter of fact, the only people who did touch it, they died right away. They hit, with all, you know, they just fell over and died. Uh, the Lord smote them, as it were, and who knows what it was. But it seems to be some kind of great power source. And so the question was, could it have been? This is really wild, but could it have been that the Ark of the Covenant uh, was one of a type of um, a battery, a generator, a capacitor of some kind that actually had the ability to power, uh, so they could actually get lights down in in the pyramid. Well, that would explain why when Moses fled, you know, Egypt, when he said to the people, "Let my people go," and they went out into the desert, and it said there they built the Ark of the Covenant. But what if they took? The ark of the covenant with them that would explain why pharaoh said okay yeah after the ten plagues get out of here go you know beat it and the uh, his, and the exodus took place moses led the people of israel you know through the parted red sea waters and they went out into the sinai and headed for israel but then moses the, then the pharaoh changed his mind and he got his army together to went out and chased after after moses and they said well what made pharaoh change his mind And some people began to say, well, could it have been that he realized that when Moses went off with the people, he didn't just go off by himself, but he took the Ark of the Covenant, which was the power source for the pyramids. And he changed his mind, he went out there, and of course the Red Sea, uh, you know, waters which parted for Moses came back together again and flooded out, uh, you know, uh, Pharaoh and all of his army. And then the story in Exodus goes to say, well, then they went and built... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant out there in the desert but what if he actually took it with him in the first place and what if it was some kind of a power source and they took it with them, and they did keep it in a tent and then they did build a whole uh, uh, temple for it and then somehow it was taken down to Ethiopia where it stands today which explains why the priests who guard it have such a short life because they're in touch with this fantastic uh, power source that you know it's a it's a crazy story, but I I love stories like that. I just really well, not, love them.
1: Not not really because if you look at some of the hieroglyphs in, in some of the uh temples, you will you will see there is there is at least one hieroglyph and it 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 appears that they have an electric light bulb.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what so, you know what's up with that? It it works it, it it's it's an interesting it's an interesting thought isn't it that because otherwise, when you stop to think about it, the whole story is so fantastic that you read about it in the Bible, you find yourself saying, Why is this included in the Bible? What does it mean? And so we start to look for all kinds of symbolic meanings and symbolic reasons for it being there. but the whole story is so fantastic. What if what we have in the Bible is a kind of a garbled version over centuries and centuries of this story being told over and over again orally, what if what we have in the Bible is actually a, a garbled version of an actual historical event? I, it makes you wonder, doesn't it?
1: Well, and, it, it, well, yeah. I mean, since people are relying upon the Bible to be their history book, which is, you know, <clears throat> in my mind, not quite yeah. appropriate, but um, yeah. it, it 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 is, it is, interesting it's an interesting philosophy and i think it, it it does bear a great deal of credence because um the nile river used to come up almost to the great pyramid that that yes. is frequently they've said that it was really oh, a power station
3: yeah and yeah. that it
1: generated power and yeah. you know there there was never any there were never any mummies found in any of those pyramids
2: yeah yeah
1: so they um, they it, you know it, it, they weren't burial places
2: well, you wouldn't think so, and they say, "Well, they—the reason the mummies aren't there was because grave robbers came in and stole them." Well, boy, that's pretty speculative. If a grave robber wants to get in there, I can see him taking the treasure, but why would he take the body? You know, that's crazy. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. There's never been one mummy discovered in one pyramid, so uh, well, and you the, know.
1: Not only that, but in the Great Pyramid, there are no hieroglyphs on the walls anywhere to yeah. tell the story of. Khufu who's supposed to be buried there, but isn't yeah, so um
2: yeah and and it's and they also say that you know it was Khufu's uh a countenance which was on what what we now call the sphinx, which was the the uh you know the the head of a head of the pharaoh and the lion's body, which sounds and they say it was built at the same time as the great pyramid of Khufu, but i I just cannot believe that um. I think okay. Robert Schock has proven pretty well that uh, the, because of the water um, erosion on the bedrock underneath the Sphinx, there's no question about it that the Sphinx was built at a time when there were great rains in uh, oh, yeah. Egypt. And there haven't been great rains in Egypt for le- 10 11,000 years. So uh, I think the, the, the uh, probably the Great Sphinx was, you know, it, it may have been, Changed so that the face of the lion was um, edited, so to speak, and made into an image of Khufu. But uh, I, I just don't. If you're going to build a pyramid that big, why do you have to build an image of yourself with a lion's body too? It, it's well, and, all of this stuff. It's, and, it's and, too much. Too much information.
1: The the Egyptians you know I mean? were so meticulous about balance and proportion and everything yeah. else. You cannot yeah. tell me that they built this huge body and then this teeny head. It had yeah. to have at one time had a lion's head on it.
2: Yeah. It had to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it's it's especially interesting that the lion the lion's head faces uh east and uh at precisely the time when this water erosion would have taken place ten, twelve thousand years ago, that was precisely the time when uh, the um, uh, constellation of Leo the Lion would have appearing would have appeared directly in the east, and the lion would have been staring right at his own image in the sky. And the last time that happened was exactly the same time ten twelve thousand years ago, when this uh, water erosion was supposed to have taken place. It all fits wow. together too beautifully. And even the Egyptians, they have this wonderful. Um, time that they call the Zeptepi and uh-huh. uh in in the Zeptepi means the first time the early time the, the beginning times and the story is that the egypt uh culture had never developed it was basically just people living hand to mouth day to day you know hunter gatherer type situations but these people came in these uh godlike people came in on their ships from the east and they taught them the nature of civilization itself. And when they say, when did that happen? They said, well, it happened ten to 12,000 years ago, exactly the same time that Leo would have been looking at his constellation, his image in the skies, exactly the same time when there was water falling uh, in the Sahara, which was not a desert then, but uh, almost like a, a savanna with forest and everything else on it. Um, all at that same time. And so, of course, you have to ask your question, well, who were these godlike people who arrived on great ships from the east? Uh, And that brings up the story of, for instance, Atlantis, because that's exactly the time that Plato puts the story of Atlantis, exactly 10,000, you know, 800 years ago. Um, And uh, and these godlike people who came from the east with great civilized skills to teach these skills to the Egyptians and the Zeptepi um, it all fits together, and it it's well, just,
1: yeah,
3: that, to me that, there's that there's, the,
2: there's too much that coincidence. And that,
1: that and the fact that I truly believe that these gods that came from the east were giants, and I do believe that a lot of those statues are lifelike statues that,
2: that are so huge. Well, that's that's interesting because you know in the in the Bible we mentioned this a little while ago. Uh, In Genesis 6, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And uh, you say, well, how did the giants get there? Well, the Bible gives a very enigmatic story of how these giants called the Nephilim were the uh, offspring of uh, mating between the sons of God and the daughters of men. The Bible says the sons of God uh, saw that the daughters of men were fair and came and, and mated with them. And their offspring were these mighty men of renown called the, um, the Nephilim or the giants. Now, the interesting thing about that is for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, you have to ask, well, who were the sons of God? And uh, generally speaking, they say, well, those are fallen angels well, how's an angel going to mate with a human woman? You know, uh, material, non-corporeal, it doesn't work. Um, uh. But what if But what if they were real people uh, from a lost civilization and uh, they were called sons of God because uh, to these primitive people who were in Egypt at the time or around the rest of the world, the hunter-gatherers who were around the rest of the world, at, at this very time, uh, you know, they were the ones that perhaps were the beneficiaries of the wisdom of this lost civilization. And uh, as often happens when you get two different species of people, you know, mating, and uh, the the offspring are totally different. Uh, the word Nephilim, which refers to giants, is, is an interesting word because it's used two other times in the Old Testament, too. First of all, when David goes to kill the giant Goliath, Goliath is called a Nephilim, and in Second Chronicles, it says that Goliath had, or First Chronicles, it said that, God had, that Goliath had uh, three brothers who were also called Nephilim, who were also giants. Um, was there a race of giants that were around the whole world? And basically, they uh, went extinct. I mean, why would you have David killing a Goliath and then say that Goliath had three brothers who were also giants, unless it was based on some kind of kernel of truth? And so the question is, where did these uh, people come from? Where 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 did these sons of God come from? Well, they were probably called that because they were part of a lost civilization. Uh, and here we have to go back to Atlantis and everything else. But the fascinating thing: this is the very same time of history, ten thousand eight six hundred years ago, when um, Göbekli Tepe in Anatolia was built. For a oh, long yeah. time, they, yeah, for a long time, they said. Uh, Egypt was first, and they said, how do you know Egypt was the first great civilization? Because we don't see any evidence of any building, anything like Egypt. And now comes Gobekli Tepe, which predates the pyramids by 6,000 years. I Um, know. Yeah, yeah. It's just
1: unbelievable. What's so fascinating is that, you know, we now have the technology to kind of pull all of this information together and say, wow. Wow. Yeah. Something else is happening here, and we don't know what it is. I, I want to also go into the Book of Enoch, because that uh, fascinates me as well.
2: Yeah, the Book of, the book of Enoch um, is, is, the, is the ancient text that fills out a lot of these stories. Uh, in the Bible, for instance, it just says there were giants in those days. Well, it was Enoch who says how they got there. Um, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. Uh, we knew that there was a character named Enoch, and we knew that he had written because he's quoted in the Old Testament. If you go to the begats <laughs> in the Old Testament, so-and-so was born, and he lived for a certain number of uh-huh. years, and then he begat a son, and then he lived a certain number of years, and then he died. And one of the ones they mentioned was the great-grandfather of, uh, of Noah, And his name was Enoch. So we know that there was a book of Enoch because he was quoted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers must have read the book of Enoch. He's also quoted in the New Testament, in Jude 14. They talk about, uh, you know, Jude talks about Enoch. Um, So the New Testament writers, whoever wrote the New Testament, they knew about the book of Enoch. But... (laughs) nobody knew who it was. So uh, the original authors of of Genesis and Jude, they they had to have known about this book because they quoted from it. But when it came time to put the the Bible together, they didn't consider it worthy of inclusion. So it was destroyed. And that was it for almost 2,000 years until 1770 when uh, James Bruce, who was an Englishman, um, with a he had a, a bit of thirst for adventure in him, and he visited Ethiopia for three years and upon his return to England, he announced an astounding discovery. He had somehow obtained an old manuscript written, written in Giez, which was the sacred language of ethiopia and it turned out to be a complete translation uh, in guse of the long lost book of Enoch, purportedly written by Enoch himself. You say, how did it get to Ethiopia? Well, we go right back to that what we were talking about earlier. When the son of uh, Solomon and Sheba went back to Ethiopia, he, when he took the Ark of the Covenant, did he possibly take the book of Enoch too? And other sacred texts. Because there they were, down in Ethiopia. Uh, in, in, uh, in Ethiopia. And so when we start to think about it, it it, it it gives us a picture of Enoch, who lived before Noah, before the purportedly uh, the alleged uh, uh, flood of Noah. And to be honest, he seems to be more like a shaman than a typical prophet. Uh, in the book of Enoch, he was a dreamer. Uh, he had out of body experiences. He claimed to have been connect uh, contacted rather by spirit entities who existed on the on uh, foreign planes of existence. Um, in in what certainly seems like a shamanic vision, he was given an advanced warning that a deluge, a flood, was coming, which would destroy the world. And the reason for the flood is given in the Bible, as well as the book of Enoch. It was basically sexual in nature. Uh, God looked down and he saw that the sons of God had been mating with the daughters of men, And the Nephilim were born, the giants were born, and the product of that union disturbed God so much that he decided he needed to wipe out uh, humankind from the earth and start all over again. So, uh, when the flood came, a strange thing in the Bible, it said, you know, it it normally said that so and so lived and had a son and then he died. In Enoch's case, it said he did not die, he was taken (laughs) one day. He just was taken. And Enoch's son was Methuselah, who lived 969 years. And Methuselah uh, was going to be God's sign that the flood was not going to come as long as Methuselah was died. And if you do the math in the Old Testament, add them all up, Methuselah dies, according to the uh, years given in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. He dies the very year the flood came. But the interesting thing is that Methuselah had a son named Lamech. And Lamech had a son named Noah. And when Noah was born, according to a, a fragment of text, the Genesis Apocryphon that comes from the book of the, uh, old, the um, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> when Lamech w- went in to look for to his son Noah at the first time, he accused his wife, and according to the book of Enoch, of having an affair with one of these sons of God. In other words, he was he he knew that the sons of God were mating with daughters of men and he thought that his wife had had an affair with one of these sons of God when he looked at his son why because his son not only glowed but it was a immense stature in other words Noah was much bigger than more, nor, normal kids <laughs> Now what what if if you want to take this literally and I'm not sure we can but I think it's fascinating to think about it you know, Noah was God's do-over. You know, according to the Bible, God destroyed the whole world with the flood, and then he, repen- re- he repopulated the whole world through Noah. But what does that tell us from the book of Enoch? It says that Noah was one of these Nephilim, that Noah was one of these giants. And if the whole earth was populated, through Noah's offspring, what does that make you and I? <laughs> we are offspring of a product of a union way, way back between the sons of God and the sons of men, or the daughters of men. Fascinating stuff, well, now, isn't it?
1: Now, the sons of God, were they angels?
2: Well, some people like to think they are, and other people like to think, well, maybe. Maybe they're not, maybe they were actually this lost civilization um of that seemed godlike because they had powers that were so much advanced over the other you know the hunters and gatherers who survived whatever the deluge or survived the uh um now it's popular to talk about the younger driest comet that hit the earth uh, you know twelve thousand uh-huh. years ago, so um it's it's hard to say. But, I'm, I, again, I'm just so struck by the fact that if, if the Bible stories that we read are all about, uh, just about, you know, mythological stories or metaphors to teach us something, why is there so much of this strange detail in them, you know? Uh, I, I find it fascinating. Um, Enoch for instance. Oh, I can go on and on about Enoch. <laughs> I hate to just keep talking on and on, but I just no, no, find this talking. stuff so fascinating. Um, Enoch was also, uh, uh, traditions in Egypt and Arabia give Enoch the honor of being the one who so, who invented writing. And he was also credited with giving the secrets of the art of building. And that's why if any of our listeners belong to the Masonic organizations, they will be very familiar with the name Enoch, because Enoch figures prominently in Freemason traditions about ancient builders. And the story says that Enoch recorded all of his knowledge on a great stone tablet, on uh, a great stone wall or a message of some kind, and then he, he disco- discovered that the earth was going to be destroyed in a great flood, so he buried the record... Quote, in the bowels of the earth now that's fascinating because to- Gobekli Tepe happened just at the time of the younger Dryas and the great flooding that must have occurred to coastlines all over the world and Gobekli Tepe after it was built and used for a couple of centuries it was deliberately buried and so when Gobekli Tepe was buried they said was this built by uh, Enoch or in the Enochian tradition as they say uh, was this Gobekli Tebbi built and then buried? Does it contain the secrets that, of Enoch that we need to know? Um, no one knows. <laughs> but, uh, but Enoch is, is, is called uh, uh, Idris in in the uh, Islamic traditions, uh, and he's called Hermes in the Greek traditions. Now that makes Enoch, and, and Hermes, of course, was one of the gods of in, in the pantheon of Zeus and all that, that makes Hermes or Enoch, or Idris, same guy. That makes him reverenced in the uh, um, the Greek pantheon of gods, right up there with Zeus and Apollo and all the rest of them. So he's he's pretty fascinating character, and his his book tells the story. Uh, he, they're all in the book about uh, whether how he was taken up through the various layers of heaven, and he was shown the highest heaven, and uh, you know, and all this. So it. Uh, he he certainly sounds like a very Old Testament shaman who had a out of body trip, and uh, well, and, know, and if, talked about it. if he it. was
1: if if he's compared or or used the name Hermes, that brings to mind the fact that, that Toth was was called uh, Hermes Trismegistus.
2: Yes, so three Tos. names. Yeah, yeah, so, right.
1: And Hermes was one of the names that Toth was
2: called by. Yeah, exactly exactly it's it it just sounds like um what we're hearing in the bible is a dim or even in the book of enoch is a a dim recollection that was told orally for hundreds hundreds maybe even thousands of years before it was finally written down and we don't even have to say that enoch was just one man who went and did all these things you know he he may have been part of a tradition you know uh that uh, the, the sometimes it's called the Enochian tradition. We just don't know, uh-huh. but um, he's it's it's fascinating. I any of your listeners who want to get into the Book of Enoch, it it's some it's some tough going um, because <laughs> you, you know there's no modern translations that read easily, but uh, it's really well worth studying. Fascinating, fascinating stuff.
1: Well, that's another question I have because you know some of them were were some of these texts that were utilized were, were they were all written in different languages and yeah. then theoretically translated into latin and then into english and you know and, and there may have been other hopscotches in there too
3: so yeah. you yeah.
1: really you really don't know the the the, the true source of of the yeah. material. Do you yeah. know the source of the material in its original form? Is, is there somewhere where it says, you know, this was, this was in, in Hebrew and this was in Aramaic? And, no, you know. no, not,
2: not really. Uh, we just assume that the book of Enoch was written in Hebrew, but uh, the only translation of it that we have was written in, in Giez, the uh, Ethiopian sacred language. Uh, you know, it's, uh, that's the frustrating when people said Jesus said this or Jesus said that um it, it's the same kind of thing Jesus uh, although he probably spoke Hebrew uh, because he would you know that's people yeah. you know but he he that was not the language that he he spoke day to day. He probably read Hebrew, but uh, the language he spoke was Aramaic, and so the Aramaic that Jesus spoke was then at one point uh, written down in in Greek by the gospel writers. And so they would write these things in Greek. However, uh, take the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. It's three okay. chapters. It takes forty five. It takes about twenty five minutes to read it aloud straight through. Twenty five minutes, Matthew five, six, and seven, to read it in English. Now, the book of Matthew was written some sixty years after Jesus died. How could somebody have possibly remembered word for word something that was said 60 years earlier and written it down, especially when the original sermon was given in Aramaic, they wrote it down into Greek, which was then translated into Latin, and from the Latin it's then translated into English in the King James Bible. That's pretty fantastic. So when everybody says, well, um, you know, this is what Jesus said because I and I say, Well, how do you know that? Well I know it because in my Bible it's written in red letters, you know. <laughs> well
1: I, there was, it was just, a congressman a long time ago that was talking, they were talking about the Bible and he's and I remember him I, I, I remember the story of him saying, If English was good enough for Jesus it was good enough yeah. for
3: me <laughs> And and <laughs> well, they were trying to lovely. change
1: a language or something. but <laughs> but what what i have never really understood is i mean and, and today there are bibles that, that that bring the speech down to a little more common vernacular but mm-hmm. the king james version i mean it was written in high english so that even english people of the day couldn't understand it so yeah. it, it, it it's it's confusing to people it's it you know and and i hate i hate to say it but the the, the reading level for most people what newspapers are written on a 7th or 8th grade level because the the yeah the i think you i think you're, I think
2: you're being public. generous <laughs> i think when you say 7th or 8th grade level it used to be yeah. back in the back in the 60s um okay. I, I lived i lived in pleasantville new york which is the home of the readers digest and the uh-huh. Reader's Digest was written back in the 60s. It was written on a sixth-grade reading level.
1: <laughs> okay. I lived in the New York, so I, I, I was oh, really? close to Pleasanton. Yes.
2: We used to play you guys in football.
1: <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, Barbara, we're rivals and didn't even know it. <laughs> what, a,
1: what a small world. I wonder,
2: because I was, I was the drum major of our high school band. I wonder if you ever saw me march on the football field and, in in our band
1: well i was born in 44 you were born in 46 6 okay
2: so we we were just 2 years apart you know
1: it, it, i would have been a, a, have i would have been a
2: sophomore when you were a senior <laughs> it could have been wouldn't oh God, that be the whole world <laughs> <laughs> But, but at any no, rate I, I, Yeah, yeah. I, I mean I, you know, if, if if people have a hard time with Shakespeare they will certainly have a harder time with the King James Bible, you know, I mean it is it is different. Oh, and and there are phrases that just don't make any sense anymore. Um, you know, for instance the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, you read the King James Bible the Apostle Paul is on his way up to uh, arrest a bunch of, you know, Christians and bring them back, and he meets the risen Christ, and he's knocked off and he's made blind. And Jesus, the risen Christ, is said to have said to him, "Paul, Paul, why persecuteth thou me? It is tough, it is hard to kick against the pricks." What in heaven's yeah. name does that mean, right? <laughs> and to be honest, I mean, there's ideas about what it means, but nobody knows what that means. It's, it's, it's. Yeah. You know, we've we've forgotten what they could possibly mean by that. Um, I've given a lot of sermons about that kind of thing, but what does that mean? You know, it's it's hard.
1: Well, <laughs> oh, so, that term has been used in slang for for people who are not very nice.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. I never even thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, it's a it's a fascinating study. You can see why I threw myself into censoring God so much because I had to I had to put all the stuff that we've been talking about between the covers of one book and I could barely do it. I was under a word what? constraint by the author. By by the publisher. Oh, gee.
1: Well and you know what what really what really is is so mind-boggling is there's so much in the Bible that talks of um even extraterrestrial stuff oh, and yeah. and yeah. and and it's why is it in there? I mean, yeah. Yeah. And if yeah. this is and what gets me and and, and and I don't mean to be irreverent, but it's going to sound it if this is the word of God, he needs a better editor. <laughs>
2: I love it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah, you know, when I I read, I mean, I was a fundamentalist minister for many years, and so I would Uh read the Bible literally. Uh, Marcus Borg, a great theologian, liberal theologian, wrote a a book called Taking the Bible Seriously But Not Literally, and I love that book, and it it really does change your whole perspective of the Bible. But... uh, when i would read these things i would read them all metaphorically you know when ezekiel was having his uh when he saw that great craft coming down and it had wheels within wheels and it was Uh piloted by uh, a person with the body of a man but it had four different heads the body of a man and an eagle and an ox and uh i forgot what the forgot what the other one was uh-huh. So it was a hybrid piloting this thing, and it came down with a great roar and flame. And when you read that chapter, freed from the doctrinal, dogmatic stuff that most of us are taught in Sunday school, it's a perfect example of an Old Testament prophet having an extraterrestrial experience with a, uh, a UFO. It's just uh-huh. it's just Perfect. Um, Same thing with Isaiah. Uh, When I started having out-of-body experiences myself, I would go back and I would read some of these stories about uh, the prophet Isaiah, for instance. Um, Isaiah talks about, in in Isaiah chapter 1, it's a classic out-of-body experience. He's in the spirit, meaning he's meditating on the Lord's Uh day on a certain day. And all of a sudden he leaves his body and he's taken up to the highest heaven. And there he meets in another dimension, in another landscape. He meets this high being that is uh, uh, suffused in light. And it's surrounded by these hybrid creatures that are part human and part animal. And they're creating vibrations or making music. And he sees this thing and he receives a message and the the being says who shall I send who shall go for me and Isaiah says here I am send me and Isaiah Mm -hmm. comes back with the rest of the book of Isaiah Um, it's a classic shamanic journey a shamanic uh, a a shaman will go into a trance and he will have an out of body experience where he'll go to a different dimension he will receive a message and he will bring that message back to the tribe it's a classic classic shamanic journey and uh, I'm—I I think it's only our own um, tight knit Christianity sometimes that says let's instead of opening our minds and accepting this stuff and saying wow what could be out there, we just say oh no that can't be because that's that's too pagan you know that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, but the foundation of, of a lot of this is pagan. I mean even. Even mm-hmm. look at the holidays. I mean they the, oh, yeah. the the Romans put the holidays on on pagan holidays too. Mm-hmm. And and then when 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 Christianity came over to Haiti, they they um the Haitians took the the names of the saints for their yeah. for their their spirit, guys. I mean, it's
3: Exactly.
2: It's, yeah. It's, um I mean, if if you go to to Chart Cathedral, one of the most beautiful cathedrals in the world today uh Chartres cathedral was built purposely right on the site that was the um the <laughs> the home place where um uh, the uh the pagan people of uh, of of Europe would meet um they were right there i mean in 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 the center of the the, the great groves where the druids met Uh Shark cathedral stands on the place where the druids used to meet in their great sacred oak groves and carry on their religion christianity so often just baptized these things. i mean tell me what do um fertility symbols like rabbits and eggs what do they have to do with easter but they're there (laughs) (laughs) or bringing an evergreen tree into your house what does that have to do with the birth of jesus but uh, the pagans did it. It was the the Yule log and all that kind of thing. So, and and they brought greenery into the house at the time of the winter solstice, and mm-hmm. and all Christianity did was baptize these things. You're right. You're absolutely right.
1: It just it it feels to me as though there's great wisdom here, and there's mm-hmm. beautiful magic here, and and a lot of the stories, even the story of Jesus. Is yeah. is reminiscent of some Greek uh some Greek mythology oh, yeah. as well.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely so, right. Uh, you know, I, I I did a um um I, I matter of fact I think it's up on my on my website, on my YouTube site, um I did a YouTube video um called One Ring to Rule mm-hmm. Them All. And I talked about how every single of the big five religions in the world today, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism Uh, Every single one of those began with a prophet who had a vision, uh, who was shamanic in nature. He had a, a, a new way of looking at the world, a new way of looking at God, a new way of seeing a connection between people and God. He had a vision, and he came back with that vision and developed a following. And then around that following grew the religions that we know today. And they're full of doctrine and dogma. And basically what they did was take that original, beautiful vision and just uh, standardize it and build walls around it and us against them and all the rest. Uh, I I think it's a tragedy. I really think it's a tragedy.
1: Well, you know, where is the true beauty of spirituality <clears throat> because i i believe that spirituality is an extension of a belief system which could be a religion it's built upon that but it goes further so yeah. that yeah. And, and i don't want and i and i believe in god i absolutely believe in god but but it seems to me that that as humans we have we have always looked for somebody to take care of us so therefore we were looking for Somebody more powerful that we could we could um, call upon to, to defend us, and the reality is, all of us have that piece of God inside of ourselves. So, yeah,
3: yeah. So
1: rather than than praying to something out there, why not pray to that part of ourselves that, that has the yeah. power to help us solve yeah. anything?
2: In, in the book of, of Psalms and also in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, uh, Jesus said is supposed to have said these words, Know ye not that ye are gods? And, uh, you know, Jesus, if Jesus was the Son of God and calls us brothers and sisters, what does that make us? Um, I really have come to believe that although in the religious world we like to say God made man in his own image, I honestly think that in most cases today, God has made man. I mean, man has made God in his own image. We have created a concept of God.
1: Um, well, if God I, if God is a spirit, then yeah, God has no form.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I love the Hindu uh, tradition. The ancient rishis talked about uh, the concept of Brahman and Atman. Uh-huh. And they would talk about, you know, uh, Brahman was the unknowable. You couldn't know G- Brahman. You couldn't describe Brahman. As soon as you tried to put Brahman in words, you've lost it. Uh, you, it, it's. Uh, they used to say, the rishis used to say, Brahman is um, that which the tongue cannot soil. It was beyond uh-huh. human concept. But how do you conceive of a god like that well they also had the idea of atman and the the easiest way to understand atman in english is probably the word soul atman is within uh atman is 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 the heart the soul of human beings and then the great the great um uh wisdom i think of the rishis when they talked about brahman and atman they would say thou art that uh, that which is within us, the spirit or the soul which was in us, is one with that which cannot be described or cannot be be touched by language.
3: Uh-huh. Um,
2: I I like that concept, I really do. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people would have troubles with it because they they want to see something and they want to hold an image in their hand or something like that. But I think that's a human weakness, not a human strength. I really do.
1: No, I agree. Um, because if, to me, it's we work <clears throat> we are a part of creation, and we were given free will mm-hmm. and That means that we have the freedom to make mistakes and to challenge ourselves with lessons and to learn from them and to grow and um, certainly knowing that there is a source of all creation um I, to me the to the term God is too restrictive, so I'd rather yeah, call it the yeah, divine. I, the I agree with you. I,
2: even, even as a minister, uh, although, granted, I haven't been in a church for 10 years, except for two days ago I went and got a COVID shot in a church, but that was the first time I've been inside a church <laughs> for 12 years. But even even today, um, I know what I mean when I say God, and I'm perfectly comfortable with it, but I don't like to use the word in public or on the air very much because I just don't know what other people are gonna be thinking when they hear me say God. Uh the word God has yeah. so much baggage, doesn't it?
1: It it doesn't the old you know, the old testament God was not a nice guy. And no if, if he created humanity or us in unconditional love and gave us free will um why did he try to destroy us? Well I mean, that's there you what go. Now sense that to me.
2: That brings us right back to the book of Genesis again. Um, Everybody is so familiar with the story of Adam and Eve. uh, But there's two major different ways of reading that story. And one of them has been censored by the Christian church. Uh, the, The message that got through, the message that was approved by Christianity, was that here's Adam and Eve, our first parents. They're in this perfect place. They're in the Garden of Eden. They have, uh, they're have. they one with each other. They're one with their environment. They're one with God. Unity. Everything is great, except for two rules. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh-huh. there was the other one you're not supposed to eat either, but it was the tree of life, because if you ate the tree of life, uh, you were going to live forever. Uh-huh. Well, okay, we all know the story that is, it comes down to us through church and synagogue and mosque, and that's that Adam and Eve... We're going about doing their business, and Eve was by herself one day, and along comes a serpent. And the serpent starts uh, tempting Eve and says, here, eat, eat, eat the apple. It wasn't an apple, but we'll just say eat the apple, because this yeah. is the, the fruit of the tree of good and evil. Now, what is good and evil? It's the tree of duality. Uh, And that is the world in which we live. We live in a world of duality of up and down and hot and cold and good and evil and all the rest of that stuff. That's that's the material world. So Eve ate of the uh, apple, and gave it to Adam, and Adam ate of it. And all of a sudden, God comes back and looks around and says, "What have you done? You've eaten of the tree of duality. Now, if you eat from the tree of life, you'll live forever." And you'll that's what Satan, uh, what the serpent tempted Eve. God knows that if you eat of the tree of uh, good and evil, you will know all things. And if you eat of the tree of it, you will be as gods. And so we always consider the serpent evil. Well, there's a total different way of looking at that. Um, uh-huh. The serpent the serpent, has been given a bad rap over here in Western society. The serpent always considered evil and everything else. But in other mythologies, specifically in mythologies of Asia and uh, even of the the other places around the world, the serpent is a positive thing uh, of India and everything else. The serpent is is a a very knowledgeable creature, and sometimes the serpent is even seen as a god. And so the other way of reading this was that, and now we go back into the Sumerian texts, which even predate the Bible, Um, the Sumerian texts tell the story of the two half-brothers one was Enlil who was the bad guy and the other was uh, uh, Enki who was the good God and Enlil according to the Sumerian scriptures wanted to enslave the human race he wanted a slave of workers he didn't want them with their head in the clouds and looking up into the spirit he just wanted workers And so, uh, when uh, all of a sudden Enki saw what was going on, Enki and his brother, uh, his sister, rather, Nenki, decided they were going to offer humankind the gift of choice, the Sumerian legend says. So, the serpent, who was really Nenki, the female goddess of wisdom, came down and offered human beings a choice the choice of knowing good and evil. And then, uh, so this was a, a a good thing, and Eve uh-huh. took the choice and and entered into the world of duality, entered into the world of experience, and according to Sumerian texts, uh, Enlil, I mean, Enlil was just incensed, and he said, "I don't want people doing this because soon they might become gods themselves and live forever." Mm-hmm. So he cast us out of the Garden of Eden, and we were cast out into this material existence where what have we done ever since then? We've had to work every day to earn our daily bread. Think about that when you go to your commute on Monday, right? We've had to work in the fields. We've had to do this. Now, even if the story is is a metaphor, which I'm certain in, in, in one great sense it is, Even if the story is a metaphor, it explains something that is totally different. The God of the Old Testament is this evil God who wants to destroy us and destroys the world with a flood and go into Canaan. The God who said don't commit murder now says to Moses, go into Canaan and kill all the Canaanites. This wasn't the good God. This wasn't the God who created the world and made everything good and said, Lo, behold, everything is good. This was the evil God, Enki. And sometimes he's called the demiurge. In other Uh words, what this version of the Bible is saying is, people who read it this way are saying, the God that we think we're worshiping, we think we're worshiping the God who created the world and made everything very good. No, that's not really the God, because history is always written by the winners. Enki was the—I mean, Enlil was the winner. He was the bad guy, and the god that we are really worshiping is none other than what Christians now and call the devil. Uh, So it's a total, total different take, but it does explain why everything was so good and rosy in the beginning, and now there's so much evil in the world. And and we have to earn our bread with the sweat of our brow and bring forth children, children in pain, and and uh, the the serpent which was the female goddess of wisdom, the serpent is to be cast underfoot and destroyed whenever we can. It it may just be a metaphor, but man doesn't explain a lot of history, huh?
1: It it does, but I still don't like snakes.
2: No, <laughs> okay, that's 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 permissible. <laughs> I, mean,
1: I mean, thanks for the wisdom, but don't 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 squiggle on my property, please, because you know, not 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 where I want to go. But but it, it does it it it. I think that when I I my my uh, son and and daughter in law they're 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 fundamental Christians and yeah. um and. And because of what I do, I have to say they have been so compassionate and so understanding and trying so much to understand my philosophy and what I do that I, I have to yeah. respect them greatly. They, they, yeah. you know, do not testify to me. They do not try to change yeah. my way of living. They, they, they really.
2: Well, to, to tell you the truth, to tell you the truth. I mean, the, the, the fundamental, of the evangelical church was my home too, and one of the reasons I wrote censoring God is I hope. That some of my old Christian friends, some of my old Christian parishioners, I hope they read it. I really do. Because people say, uh, well, you know, Jim, you're talking about all these different things. Uh, Didn't this destroy your faith? And to my way of thinking, no, it didn't destroy it at all. It made it so much deeper and so much wider and so much more open and acceptable. And not
1: only that. But it, but it it gives you a different a broader sense of yeah yeah who the divine is right the divine created right. the god that that Christianity and everybody worships and yeah. and yet and I think in a way the fact that there's a source above that who's probably sitting and chuckling a lot
2: I mean <laughs> I would think you know, so. You know, you, you know how I what like the,
1: doing <laughs>
2: the way the 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 uh, the mental image that I like to have right now, and I'm, I'm certainly uh, I don't want to throw this out and, and start a new religion or anything like that. I'm not trying to convert anybody to it. I just find this very helpful myself. Because I'm a, I'm very big on both left brain and right brain, both the intellect and the intuition. And uh-huh. um, I, I like to picture, you know, I, I try to say, well, who who are we? How did we get here? I like to picture a, a, a pie, something round. And then I take a slice out of that pie with a point end in the middle and then the outer crust out there. In the point, in the center, picture this pie, picture it whirling around and around and around in a circle, all the energy that's going around in a circle. But in the center, there's perfect peace, there's perfect stillness, there's perfect unity, oneness, everything is the same. And you would say, why would anybody ever want to leave that? Well, because there's one thing we can't experience in that perfect peace of perfect center, and that's... We cannot experience individuality. And I've okay. almost come to be convinced that every single one of us, at one time, that's that's a source of our being. We have always been in the source. It's eternal, and uh, and we cannot be separated from it. But in order to experience individuality, the great experience of individual, we had a courageous decision to leave the source and to move out into the first area, which I like to call consciousness, Uh, we're not human beings yet but we have we're aware of consciousness this was the place that both uh, albert einstein and stephen hawking called the mind of god and there in the mind of god we can experience individual consciousness for the first time but it's not sufficient it hasn't taken us far enough so we have to go through the first field of energy and that field is what i like to call the akashic field the akashic field is the place of all potential and all possibilities. And in that Akashic field, we begin finally to have an idea of individuality and how we can accomplish individuality. Now, uh, Plato talked, or Socrates rather, talked about uh, the idea of horse and horseness. He said, A horse comes and goes, <laughs> but horseness mm-hmm. lasts forever. Horseness is the ideal. <laughs> And a horse is only an expression of horse That's what you discover in the Akashic field. We're not individual people yet, but we have an idea of what a person can be. So we enter the second place of reality that I like to call quantum reality. That's the place of thoughts and intuitions. Now we have some direction. Now we have an idea of, of what's happening. We're in that field of quantum reality, which we have just discovered through mathematics. But I think that shamans uh, and and gurus and rishis have been traveling that landscape for thousands of years uh, in their minds. Uh-huh. But we've just discovered it now th- through the, the the magic of mathematics, and we know that we're, we know that we're all based in that in that field of quantum reality. That is the basis of all life. So how do we get from there out to the material, to the edge of the piece of pie? We have to go through the next field, and the next field is the newly developed Higgs field. When energy Mm -hmm. travels through the Higgs field, it, uh, in effect, takes on mass. It slows down and takes on mass. So in the Higgs field, which was just developed within the last 20 years and and just been proven through the uh, Large uh, Hadron Collider over in Europe, the Higgs field is that place through which we travel, and all of a sudden, quantum reality, which does not have mass yet, takes on mass as it goes through the Higgs field. Uh, here in America, we talk about uh, the Higgs field being like a field of uh, molasses. It slows us down. In Europe, they're more apt to call it treacle. <laughs> you go through a field of treacle, the European scientists. But when you go enter into that through that higgs field all of a sudden you enter into this last place where we live right now the edge of the pie the crust of the pie material reality manifested we have eaten of the apple we have gone into the place of good and evil the world of duality i call it our perception realm we're blocked off by our five senses which let in certain impressions but not others for instance We know our senses tell us that uh, there is red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. We know there's light that vibrates a lot faster than that, but we just can't see it. Microwaves, for instance. We know that there's a light that vibrates slower, but we can't see that either. So our senses take a slice of that reality and say, this is all you can handle. Same thing with sound. I mean, my dog hears sounds and smells, smells that I can't, you know, comprehend. But out here in this reality, now we can do something that we left the source for. We can, this is a school, (laughs) we can experience individuality. We can experience what it is to be outside of oneness, outside of unity. We've been, we've left the Garden of Eden, so to speak. We now know what it's like uh, to be an individual apart from God, apart from each other, apart. Now, the The good side of that is that that's what we came out here to experience. The bad thing is that it can make us feel very alone sometimes. Uh, And we can feel cut off from our friends, cut off from other people, cut off from our environment, cut off from God. Well, that's the price we have to pay. That's why I said it was such a courageous decision for us to make but out here in this material reality in this perception realm we go through our lives and we experience good and bad we experience health and we experience pandemics we experience peace and war all of the the good and the bad the the uh tree, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil mm-hmm. but when we when we die it's only our material body that dies we make our way back to the source and we carry all of this wisdom that we got out here in school We carry it all back with us, and we re-enter the source. So what happens to the source? It gets larger. It has an experience now that it could never have before, and our material is pooled, so to speak. Our wisdom is pooled. In effect, we come from God, and we take back to God that which we have experienced, and in that sense, we really are God out here in the world experiencing something, that we could never have experienced there in the source, that place of perfect peace. I I don't, I
1: know, agree. If
3: it's, if
2: it's, I don't know if it's true, but I, it, it helps me. It helps me. Whenever... I, I
1: agree totally, totally with your whole process up to the very last.
2: <laughs>
1: I, will, I believe that we separated to grow, to gather, to learn, to experience all of your different fields, you know, but but ultimately. I believe that the spark within us grows with each incarnation so that ultimately we become a source of creation and I send love out that. seeds ourselves. Yeah.
2: I love that. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Boy, I, I can mean, just why, hear the words of Jesus, know ye not that ye are gods, you know? Ye are the source. Why, wow. why would yeah. we have
1: to why would we have to return to a source of everything? That knows everything
2: exactly, I yeah.
1: I think we've been sent out to become a source ourselves, mm-hmm. not wow. not next lifetime, you know, maybe yeah. a few more but but it makes sense to me that if the the that the source is seeding eternity,
2: oh, I love that thought that's a beautiful that's so, a beautiful way to put it, yeah, so,
1: so that we as seeds. Eventually, we'll become creators ourselves to seed another dimension, another universe, another realm, another whatever. But, but it makes sense that it's sending out seeds or, um, missionaries or, whatever and, and, and that our responsibility is to grow and become as good as we can each lifetime and take each experience and build it so that the spirit within us becomes larger and larger and larger and, and yeah. at some point I think that 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 spirit that was in Jesus and Buddha and Krishna and everything we're we're on their same journeys too.
2: That's that's weird. I love that thought. Just like, like kind of a spiritual multiverse, you know, all these different universes yeah. existing, yeah. Uh, seated at the at the beginning. That's that's fascinating. So yeah, yeah, and, and the Big Bang, which starts all these different universes, and uh, the Big Bang, the Big spiritual bang, which starts all these different seeds, which go out into infinity and seeds infinity. With wow, that's 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 a pretty heavy thought it really is, Barbara. I love it. Yeah,
1: and and it but and it doesn't deny that 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 there are spiritual people who come into this dimension for the mm-hmm. purpose of sharing with it, but they're on their journey too. And yeah. yeah. They're just so they're so much more evolved than we are. Yeah. Yeah. That, that usually, and and usually you know we don't appreciate them, so we kill them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Try right. we crucify them. Um <laughs> You know, when when you come right down to it, uh, when people say sometimes, well, this is just, you know, pie in the sky thinking, and how does that help me in my daily life? If you're facing a pandemic, if you're facing evil, if you're facing a war, if you're facing something like that, isn't it practical to think that one of your jobs is to face this, even though it's bad, even though it's evil, even though it hurts? Absolutely. That's why you came well, out here. Now, to me, that we, would yeah. that would help people get through tough times. That's that's pretty practical. That's not just a I'm, a wild you know spiritual thought. That's a a very practical reason for learning about this stuff. I think.
1: And then that old saying, you know, you're never given more than you can handle. Is true.
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: I mean, sometimes you're overwhelmed, and you have to have a, a couple of you know, woe is me days. But um, yeah, you do handle it. And, yeah. and the fact that you are capable of doing it, and you have within you the creative strength to to um, to solve whatever it is that you're facing, I mean, it's yeah. important to realize that 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 the struggles that you get are actually something that you've invited into your life so you can grow.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, you yeah. know, and and so you know, don't be so ambitious next time.
2: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't well, check you know, all the boxes. Yeah, you know, even when people were facing something horrible like the Holocaust, uh-huh. uh, and when they were marched off to the concentration camps, um, the ones who made it, even in the midst of all that evil, the, were the ones who were not who were, who were able to say, "I can do this." I, I, you know, this uh-huh. this happened for a purpose, even though it's terrible. It sounds terrible, but it would give you strength to go through it. Yeah. Um, so that's well, look that's at the, a pretty look, practical look what, thing.
1: Look at what happened with nine eleven. I believe, yeah. first of all, it was a tragedy. It was horrible. But when um, when it happened, I, I lived in the Maranac, and we could see the smoke, and we there were ashes. So we, oh, even we, from
2: the Maranac, huh? Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize so, that.
1: Um, yeah, we were right on the water. So oh, I was um, I was
2: way over in New England then, so I didn't see it.
1: So what what? I saw was and it it was it was in and 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 again it was an incredible sacrifice and yet those spirits on some level volunteered to be yeah. um to to be uh oh gosh they 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 knew spiritually that they were becoming a a, a symbol for something for all of humanity, yeah and yeah it, it and, was, and if, I, saw, and, I saw a celebration of lights going up in the clouds, yeah,
2: yeah, and if people say um well you know if 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 they're tempted to to look at this and 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 say uh, you know, how can you make good out of tragedy and I'm, my way of thinking is. If you don't make good out of tragedy, then tragedy wins, you know? Yeah. Uh, so we have to. It's one of the things we have to do.
1: Well, look at all the people that lose children and then turn it into an amazing journey of helping children who have disabilities or whatever because yeah, they've lost yeah. a child to that disease or something. Yeah. I mean,
3: yeah.
1: if if you lose a child, it's it's devastating i can't imagine it i don't want to even think about it but but if you take that experience and you take that pain and you say how can i help humanity how can i take this experience and help other people who are going through maybe the same thing how can i how can i learn from this grow from this and help other people heal from this then then you've then you've taken that step beyond the pain
2: yeah yeah.
1: And, and the pain's still there, of course. But, sure. You know, you, well, you do
2: something. my like it. my my wife um, recently lost her son up in New England, and uh, uh, he he died. And then uh, she was faced with this big thing: how do I get up there, uh, you know, to do some kind of a memorial service for him? And and uh-huh. she had to. It was in the middle of a pandemic. What do you do? So she had to wait month after month after month. And uh, he he was cremated, and and she finally decided, I I just have to do this. And when the shots became available, she got her shots so she could fly. And she Uh went up there not knowing what was going to happen. Um, It was up on Martha's Vineyard, and she hadn't lived there for years. She went up there uh, and just passed the word around. The the word just got passed around that uh, we're going to have not not a, a, a funeral service. We're going to have a celebration of life for this you know, mm-hmm. man who lived here on Martha's Vineyard. And the parking lot was jam-packed with people. Uh, one of the, his good friends was a police officer, and he said, I'm just going to wander around out here because I don't want to be the one to run you all in <laughs> because they were having <laughs> this great gathering, you know. And person after person came up. And and completely unplanned, and took some of uh, his ashes and put them out in the ocean where he, that he loved so much, and told the story. And so many people came up to her afterwards, and they said, We're, you know." And Barb just went up there. She thought maybe there might be you know a couple of dozen relatives or something at the most. And all these people from all over the island came, and they kept on saying the same thing to her: "We are so glad you did this." Uh, she was she did it on his birthday, which was happened to be Saint Patrick's Day. And so here here is this this great uh, in instead of a tragedy, you know, Adam is gone, it was a great uh celebration of who he was and how he changed our lives and he entered into the hearts of every single person who was there that day. And it turned it a, a, what was what would have been a tragedy into a a very beautiful testimony of, of faith and strength and and memory and hope and uh that's the kind of thing that can happen. I, I, I really believe it.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, it's those moments that, that unite us. And
2: yeah. I think yeah. the
1: fact that we've been so isolated that people are beginning to unite in a safe way, <clears throat> you know, yeah. more and more and more. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, there are there's bad stuff going on, but, you know something, there's always going to be bad stuff going on. And if you have peace and love in your heart, that's what surrounds you. Yep.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I I really do. Uh, I, I I really do feel for people who say, "But, but, Jim, we're out here. How come I don't know this? How come I don't feel this?" Well, because that act of of moving out from the source into individuality with, carries with it the idea that if we knew all this stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, if it was imprinted in our heart, I mean, we didn't just believe it, but we knew it. It wouldn't have the proper teaching for us. The only way to, exactly. to do it is to actually experience it. The only way to experience individuality is sometimes to, is to be alone. Uh, the only mm-hmm. way to experience uh, the joy of life is sometimes to go through the tragedy too. And if we understood it then it wouldn't be the same. They used to have this conversation about Jesus on the cross. The priests used to argue back and forth. Did Jesus know he was divine? Did Jesus know that uh, he was going to get through the cross? And some of the priests would say, yes, he must have, because he was the Son of God, the whole Trinitarian thing in Christianity. And the other priests would argue, no, because if he had actually known it, then it wouldn't have made the cross so terribly painful and meaningful, you know the only way um he could do it was to face it as a human and that meant do it on faith not by not by uh-huh. sight you know and so uh, i've i've grown to to really have a great uh, a great appreciation for the idea of living our lives by faith uh and it was strange because i i thought i was doing it when i was younger and then i gave it up when i kind of uh, was in that weird section of turning away from Christianity <laughs> but now I find myself coming back with a whole new appreciation of what faith is uh and and it it really empowers me it empowers me. i think it empower all of our lives i really do
1: yeah it's not it's not so much believing us, it's knowing
2: yeah yeah i i've got a sneaking suspicion that when when this body dies the first thing we're going to do is wake up And we're going to say, I knew it.
1: My my late husband and I had a, he was a biblical theologian, and Mm -hmm. he did not believe in reincarnation, and I do. And Mm -hmm. finally, you know, we would go round and round and round and round, and I finally said to him, I tell you what, only way we're going to solve this. First one who dies (laughs) comes back and tells the other who was right. (laughs)
3: <laughs>
1: so, I have not heard from him. So, I assume I'm right because he is the kind that would never come back and tell me, you know, you were right.
2: Never happens. Well, you know, I, 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 as when I was a you know, fundamentalist and an evangelical Christian myself, um, predestination was considered of the devil and all that kind of stuff but now when i read the bible i i can find plenty of there's plenty of room in christianity and in judaism i think also i i i think even in islam if if you know people really want to study it i think there's plenty of room uh-huh. for reincarnation i really do uh, i have personally come to to believe in it myself as you do sometimes i wonder about this whole nature of time thing i don't know if we live our lives one after another, after another, or if we live lives in all separate times, at the, in, in all at the same time, we are experiencing life here, but in perhaps another dimension, we are there. On we're experiencing life in the f- past or in the future or whatever. I don't know how that all works, and I don't really need to know. But I don't think there's any problem at all with um,
1: well, uh, the, the creation you know, of a human spirit. It is yeah. much too complex for a one-shot deal.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I I agree 100%. Yeah. Um, I've even had a couple of out-of-body experiences in which uh, four different times now I've had the opportunity of finding somebody who died uh, confused and uh-huh. uh, didn't know where they were, sometimes for long periods of what we would call time, but for them, of course, time doesn't exist. And I've actually no. had the, the the blessing of helping them Uh, helping them on toward the light Uh, um, it's called the work of the psychopump, and uh, I've been really blessed by this up at Monroe Institute where I studied for a week with uh, William Buhlman they have a special Mm -hmm. uh, group up there who just majors in this they study this stuff and they do it and they've been able to actually uh, meet people who have died. And then when they come back, they come back with a name, with a place, and they've actually looked them up and find them in the historical record, uh, find them in the records of the town where they lived and that kind of thing. I had that opportunity once, and uh, it was an absolutely unbelievable experience to come up with a name and to come up with a town and to come up with a street and then Google that and find the place where I was. Uh, it's it's just wow. wonderful, wonderful.
1: I've yeah. had a number of people from the Monroe Institute on the show, yeah.
2: and um, yeah.
1: they they have <clears throat> it, it it's remarkable the work that they can do.
2: Oh, they're doing um, tremendous work up there. Yeah, yeah.
1: And and so you know, I've I've done some out of body work too, and and remote viewing for sure, and yeah. uh, it is. I think that's the one thing about this metaphysical field. In my mind, a lot of people become a psychic and they stop growing and they sit with being a psychic and they're happy. And, yeah. you know, I've always said there has to be something more. And yeah. I served in the pulpit for five years Um. in a, in, in a spiritualist church and oh. never never thought I would do that. Yeah. <clears throat> put, put everyone to sleep the first time I gave a sermon.
2: Um, <laughs> and now you're, at... now you're talking for two oh, hours now you're talking for two hours, broadcast around the world so <laughs> yeah well
1: th- this is this is this is many many decades later
2: <laughs> but
1: but it's, it's well it's, amazing. it's all
2: it's all part of our growth isn't it it really is um and and i i think there's a a danger of being locked in uh we, we started this whole conversation talking about um the scriptures and and how to read the scriptures and uh we had mentioned the fact that you know doctrines and dogmas can really lock us in i think we sometimes have to break through those do- doctrines and dogmas um i had i had an experience the other day you know history is often uh, hidden in uh in in texts that people pluck out of the scriptures to s- support what they already believe i was studying a uh, a thing recently about the civil war and uh i was wondering what it would have been like on the sunday before the civil war i live in south carolina so on the sunday before south carolina uh began the civil war <laughs> you know by bombing the the, the fort and I, I I pictured in my mind two different preachers in two different churches, one down here in South Carolina and one up north in New England, say, where I used to live, on the Sunday before the Civil War. And the, uh, the preacher down here in South Carolina picked out uh, his passage for the day was going to be from the book of Ephesians that said, Slaves, obey your masters. And on that text, that's right there in the book of Ephesians, uh, slaves, obey your masters. And on that text, everybody was saying, see, it's the, it's the will of God that slavery is, is in the world today. We have to defend it because it's God's will. Meanwhile, up in New England, there's another preacher, and he picked for his text that day the text from Galatians that says, there is no more slave or free, for we are all one in Christ. And his congregation all said, see, the Word of God says, the Bible says, that slavery... Uh, is 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 wrong we got to get rid of it and then the civil war began, and two hundred and fifty eight thousand people in that war died believing in their wholeheartedly wholeheartedly in ephesians and three thousand six hundred died believing uh, th- uh yeah thirty six thousand people uh died believing in galatians that we are all free in christ both of them Both groups of people died for their belief in the Bible. And Uh both of them were totally right with their belief and totally, absolutely, totally wrong with their belief. Uh, The Bible said both things. And so what does that mean? That we just have to get rid of the Bible? No, it means that we got to compare these things and say, what is the wisdom that we're trying to get at here? And the fact that, like I say, the Bible comes to us through a committee. And uh, it's it's really hard, but I think... uh, For those uh, people who might be listening to our conversation today and saying, uh, that's not what I believe about the Bible, I have to ask you the first question I always ask people when they say that. Have you read the Bible straight through from cover to cover? Uh, That's the first thing. Uh, And it's really not that difficult. There's all kinds of English translations that make it very readable. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's the first thing. If you're going to swear by a book or swear at a book, <laughs> or, or if you're going to swear on a book, for heaven's sake, read it. If you're going to call it the Word of God, what can be more important in, in, in the world than to say, if this is the Word of God and I haven't even read it, man, what does that make me? And yet I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that if we just do it with an open mind and really read and and uh, meditate and think, uh, there's going to be parts that are going to make us mad. There are going to be parts that are going to make us happy. Uh, there are going to be parts that will in, will bring great insight, and we're going to. there are going to be parts that we're are, we're saying that's just plain stupid. Uh, but it, it, you know, it, it's it's it, it's. I say it the Bible, but you can do the same thing with the Quran. You can do the same thing oh, yeah. with Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. You can do the same thing with the Upanishads, uh, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, with the wisdom of the Buddha. So it's all uh it's all there. I do ha- if
1: I do have one question with these committees okay. or councils committees, or whatever yeah. they were called. Yeah. How how many women were on them?
2: None. <laughs> None. Uh there is there is some uh evidence that perhaps in the Gnostic tradition in Egypt that uh there may have been women in more involved but in roman christianity and in orthodox christianity none none at all which was probably why mary magdalene was was buried so much i mean she's dangerous if she if she turned out to be the disciple who jesus loved uh, and when some of the disciples say uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, for instance, that Jesus loves uh, loves you more than us, and they're talking to a disciple, we don't know which one, but the suspicion is that they were talking about Jesus loved Mary Magdalene more than he did the other disciples, perhaps That's because awesome. they were a couple. I, I just don't know. But uh, we have lost a lot, because not only were there no women in the original councils and the committee, but down through history, uh, women have just not been allowed to make uh, real uh, contributions to Christianity, to Judaism, to Islam, uh, right. and it, it is, seems, it, is it's, just, just, it's, it is just it is just totally killed them, the whole it religion.
1: Seems, it seems to me, since it took a man and a woman to create humanity, then yeah. there should be a balance in the records that were kept and and have been brought forward in time to guide humanity
2: one would think one would think yeah. it would be a different world <laughs> i'm i'm telling you be. i'm i'm feeling the same way in american history uh i can't wait to have our first woman president i guarantee it's going to change the way the way the 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 uh, country works And I can say that because look at what Margaret Thatcher did in England. And look what what Golda Meir did in Israel. Um, History itself tells us that when women are uh, not just allowed, but women are followed, uh, it makes a total, total difference in the way we view the world and what happens. It It
1: does. And on that, on that, I have to tell you that we're out of time.
2: Oh, oh. well, this has gone by quickly. <laughs> it's
1: gone by very quickly, and I thank you so very much for sticking with me and getting the show finally done.
2: Well, and, yeah, I, the audience doesn't realize this was our third try. We ran into technical problems. <laughs> so
1: All over the place, but, but we but got we it did done. It.
2: But we and, did And it.
1: thank you so much. And, and I'm going to have you back on again because I'm going to read more of your books. So we'll have you back oh, on. Oh, I hope I, so. And, I hope so. And and we will certainly um, see you on Mark's show shortly. I think okay. next week or the week next after. Next
2: week, next uh, next Tuesday. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So looking forward That's to that then. as well. So thank oh, okay. you again for being so so so. Um, so much there for me to do it three times,
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I sure appreciate it good, good talking with you, Barbara, as always
1: and to you as well And thank you, everybody, for listening. Certainly appreciate your joining us. Check us out on um, YouTube and on Rumble, and if you like what you're hearing and seeing and and learning. Please make sure to subscribe. We sure, that's the only way we really know you're listening. So I would really appreciate if you do that. That's it. Good night. Have a great one. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and stay wise.